I want to draw your attention to the fact that um, very vivid Tibetan painting has a curious way of creating a state of mind, if you really start looking at it, that I can only call psychedelic. Uh, it, it's, I don't know anything else quite like it. Uh, as you get into the detail of it, it's like this. Let's suppose that you look at some object and instead of the thing becoming fuzzy and fading out, it always gets more detailed, more clear, more alive. And uh, you suddenly find out that what you thought was just a bunch of blur was 16,000 maggots with bright eyes on them and that every eye was a deep jewel. And you go down into these deep jewel-like eyes and you find inside them that there are cross-legged Buddhas with aureoles round them and uh, necklaces of uh, human heads. And then you start looking at those and by Jove, in every eye on one of those human heads you look inside it and there's another Buddha sitting there, see? And you go on like that forever and ever and ever in myriad detail, see? But now that is a state of consciousness which these artists are trying to represent. It is the, the, the idea of the, the um, Dharma Dhatu, which I explained in last seminar. That is to say, the net of jewels where every jewel reflects all the other jewels and therefore naturally contains the reflection of all the other jewels in each other jewel that it reflects. You see? The infinite interrelatedness, or they call it mutual penetration of everything in the universe. And so this is an art form designed to get you into the mood to understand that by looking at it. It is absolute total fascination. But what I was trying to describe to you about the nature of these art forms, where you look at the details and then you suddenly discover that behind the details there are millions more details. And you never fuzz out. You find, in other words, that the, the possibility to see down into something goes on forever and ever. Now then, that is the visual equivalent of hearing when you work with mantras, with these uh, formal chants. To get to hear sound in such a way that, it, just as you could say that a, a visual field is rich in detail, like these paintings are, like a piece of um, Hindu beautiful silk weaving which is rich with gold and flowers and you see detail in that. Now, you can hear sound in the same way and that's what Hindu music is playing with.
And so when you get down into that, you see, you are what I would call truly listening in to the universe. Because eventually if you listen to sound that way, or you look at form that way, you discover its secrets. This is just another way of investigation of life, comparable to our scientific investigation with microscopes and chemical analysis and this, that, and the other. But it's a different road. Scientific investigation uh, does what we call looking out into matter, into the physical world, this is going in the opposite direction, but it's all the same thing. It's the same continuum. But it's going into the nature of your feeling of it. That is to say, into the center of awareness, into the self. And what these, all these drawings are, from various points of view, is they're drawings of your own interior world. Looked at in this way, under the influence of the traditions of a, indeed, a particular culture, which is not our culture, and uh, which therefore strikes us as a little strange. But whenever you look at a work of art, and you feel, gee, isn't that weird? That's not the way people look. Uh, you know, for people's first impression of Chinese art, say, they perhaps don't meet Tibetans so easily, is that it's, um, well, everything's got curls on it. It wiggles. It's uh, very strange. <clears throat> and that, the, the reason for that is that they are showing you a vision of the universe which you haven't looked at. And so it looks odd to you. And what you mean by odd is, well, it curls where it shouldn't. Or, uh, I don't see things that way. I don't see them with that extra flip on them. No, indeed you don't. Because the way you see things is what you call ordinary and what you're used to. And as you know, we, when we see things, we ignore. We screen out certain aspects of things which we don't notice. And therefore, by studying other people's art forms, we are taught to see things that we wouldn't ordinarily notice. So that when you become used to Chinese or Tibetan painting, you say, why, of course. That's the way the world is also. So the feeling of the strange, of the, uh, we say, the, we use the word exotic. And that means looking, a thing looks exotic when you look at it from somebody else's point of view. And eventually you get used to it. And so if you move into a state of consciousness, such as I've been trying to describe, that is not the usual kind of state of consciousness, you say it's kind of weird, isn't it? And if you aren't uh, prepared for that, you might be afraid of it. And say, am I going mad? Am I going out of my mind? Yes, you are. You're going out of your set, ordinary set of mind. But you're going into just another aspect of mind.
And at first it always feels weird. That's why people have difficulty in meditation. When they really start moving, they say, well, I'm going to go out of my mind if I think about that. You know all those famous stories about people who invented computers and went mad? <laughs> or who thought about the nature of thought and absolutely were never heard from again? <laughs> uh, there's a certain fear, in other words, of the loss of one's own ego of uh, the sort of regular world where conventions go on, where the familiar gestures are made so that you feel at home, and you get into uh, other dimensions of awareness where the gestures are different. The nerves are doing something else, or in Eden, you don't know whether they're even nerves anymore. They may be um, Adi Buddhas and uh, all these charming girls who you see in these things, and you don't know who they are. Some kind of weird Tibetan fantasy. You say, uh oh. As you get cultural shock. Stay away from that. But isn't cultural shock. Uh, with respect to some other people. It's cultural shock with respect to your own inner life. In other words, that we all have in us levels of vibration which we are not used to, not familiar with, and therefore are scared of. So this particular kind of Buddhism, Vajrayana, is a rather adventurous, not to say dangerous, exploration of man's inner consciousness, depicting it in an elaborate symbolism, which although to a Westerner used to Christian symbolism, looks as if it were a drawing of some heaven somewhere of potentates seated on thrones and receiving homage and all that political bit. All these are quite definitely, I'm not in making this up, all these are quite definitely to be understood as exteriorizations of your own being. In other words, let us suppose that we looked on a microscope slide at the cross section of a spinal column or of a uh, an area of the brain. This would show us certain designs, certain patterns, and they would be uh, rather central to you. Now, these are equivalent to those, but they are moving in a different direction. And you have to understand now the difference between what is called the material body and the subtle body, the rupa, actually that means the formal body, as I explained last uh, second seminar. Uh, the word rupa in Sanskrit, which 
apply, is applied to the material world means the world of form, the world seen in a certain form, a form to which we are accustomed. So you have a formal body, which is you as you appear to any other objective observer. Then you have a subtle body, which is the way you are as you feel to yourself. In other words, supposing you've been on a drunk and you wake up with a headache and it feels that your head is so big. Well, that's the shape of your subtle body. Uh, Spiegelberg used to show a wonderful cartoon of Corky in the comics looking at a plane going over which was doing some stunts and it made his neck grow longer and longer until it all got tied in knots while watching the plane. That was the shape of Corky's subtle body, which is called his linga sharira in Sanskrit, as opposed to stula sharira, which is your gross body. That means more dense. Now, so when you get the drawing of the uh, the, the microscope slide of, say, a cross-section of the spine or something that is quite fundamental to the structure of nervous system, you've got a design <coughs> of the gross body. But when you start looking into the other direction of things, which is how you feel, and you really go into feeling to what sound is, to what touch is, to what emotion is, and you trace the senses back along their channels till you get to the mano-vijnana, which is the central sense behind each separate sense. And you find that it isn't just kind of a goo, it's, a, uh, it's an incredibly detailed experience. And then you draw pictures like this to represent what you found. we would draw them in a different way. If we genuinely made this inquiry uh, ourselves, because we have different traditions. And we would find ourselves, goodness only knows what we'd be drawing. But we would, make, uh, we would uh, be making things like the stained glass windows in Chartres Cathedral, you see and uh, crucifixes, because uh, when you investigate sensation, you go down into it, and you feel it getting more and more intense, more and more intense, more, more, more. You, go, you see, right down, how much can you stand? Well, there's Jesus on the cross. See? Cover it with jewels. Make it gorgeous. <coughs> So all these things you see are investigations of the basic sensation of being alive. And people are curious about that. You know, where are we? What's it all about? Well, the only way is to look and see. So if you want to find out what you mean by meaning, by asking a question, by being conscious, by being here, well, you have to meditate.
And meditation, as not meditating on something, like thinking it out in an intellectual way, it is looking more closely at what you're asking the question about. So, you can do that externally, with a microscope, with chemical analysis, and so on. That way is valid. But it has to be balanced by the internal way. Going down into your own sensation and your own consciousness. And the point that I, I'm going to make again in another way that I made this morning is that this isn't something you're supposed to do. That is to say, it isn't a chore. It isn't your solemn duty, unless you want to come on. Uh, that's the sort of person you ought to be. This is a delight. To get into that out of total fascination and joy and uh, love of whatever it is that you are and everybody else is. So that this is a different spirit of religion than that to which we are normally accustomed. Instead of saying, uh, which I suppose is uh, an attitude characteristic of what you might call a patrist as distinct from a matrist culture, Go and read your Bible. Get down on your knees and repent, you see. Ooh. Now, we, we feel pretty, pretty um, spooked by that attitude. This one says instead, Psst. I've got something to show you. <laughs> Look in here. <laughs> You all know what all this is about? You watch. Take a look. You look in there and you say, Oh, no. <laughs> it can't really be like that. And you look at this other guy who's the guru. See? He says, It's all right. Don't be afraid. Ooh. That's not possible. Say, yeah. You know? And this is the attitude. <laughs> and I don't know how to suggest it except by this sort of drama. Uh, of the two different approaches. So, this then is the, as near as I can get to describing it, the inner meaning of Tantra, of an attitude which is common to both Hinduism and Buddhism. They say Tantra, it means not only the web, the warp and the woof, where you can't have yes without no. You can't have this direction without having this that direction, because this direction, to have it there, needs this other one to hang on to. But he says, no, look here, uh, i got to have something to hang on to too, so we hang on to each other, and so there we are. See? <laughs> That's the nature of a web.
And so, uh, Tantra means the comprehension of the unity of opposites, of the good and the bad, of life and death, of love and hate, of all extremes in the whole spectrum of our emotions, our sensations, everything. In a sense, this is not something for children. <laughs> because uh, you have to be reliable to get into this, because otherwise you go berserk. You wouldn't pay any respect to any rules or anything uh, if you didn't have a mature attitude before getting mixed up in this. Because you suddenly see anything and everything goes. There is no way of being wrong because you are it, whatever there is, forever and ever and ever, and that's so. You can die, fantastic, forget everything altogether, blow right out, come back because the light is the other side of the darkness. Be all new again, but it's all you just as it was before because you do the same patterns same kind of stars, same kind of uh, physical properties, the same dance, blot it out, it starts again. Just like the physical forces in things, you see, repeat their fundamental laws and patterns. It's exactly the same with the inner world I'm talking about. Investigating the outer world, investigating the inner world, it's all one. And uh, that's you. So, Buddhist enlightenment is simply to know that secret. And that's what it means, really, finally, to grow up. You see, again, just as I said that uh, we find in our own preachers and religious people an attitude of against-lifeness. And we get a funny feeling about that, that they're they're full of reprimands and they're full of, uh, there's a trap, you see, and they have the Young People's Fellowship, as I explained, to suck you into this trap. Uh, it's exactly the same thing exists here. In particular, I think one of the basic tantric texts is called Saraha, the Treasury of Songs, by um, Professor Gunther of the University of Saskatchewan. Saraha was a tantric teacher living probably in the area of Bengal about 1000 AD. He is making a critique of both the Hindu and Buddhist orthodoxy. So he says the Brahmins who do not know the truth recite the four Vedas in vain. With earth and water and kusha grass they make preparations and seated at home they kindle fire and from the senseless offerings that they make they burn their eyes with the pungent smoke. In lordly garb, with one staff or three, they think themselves wise with their Brahmanical law. 
Vainly is the world enslaved by their vanity. They do not know that the Dharma is the same as the non-Dharma. <laughs> With ashes, these masters smear their bodies, and on their heads they wear matted hair. Seated within the house, they kindle lamps. Seated in a corner, they tinkle bells. They adopt a posture and fix their eyes, whispering in ears and deceiving folk, teaching widows and bald-headed nuns and such like, initiating them as they take their fee. The Jain monks mock the way with their appearance, with their long nails and their filthy clothes, or else naked and with disheveled hair, enslaving themselves with their doctrine of liberation. <laughs> if by nakedness one is released, then dogs and jackals must be so. If from absence of hair there comes perfection, then the hips of maidens must be so. <laughs> if from having a tail there comes release, then for the peacock and yak it must be so. If wisdom consists in eating just what one finds, then for elephant and horse it must be so. For these giant monks there is no release, Saraha says. Deprived of the truth of happiness, they do but afflict their own bodies. Then there are the novices and uh, bhikshu, that means a Buddhist monk, with the teaching of the old school. That's not the same as old school Thai. It means the <laughs> old school of Theravada Buddhism. <laughs> with the teaching of the old school who renounced the world to be monks, some are seen sitting and reading the scriptures. Some wither away in their concentration on thought. Others have recourse to the Mahayana. This is the doctrine which expounds the original text, they say. Others just meditate on mandala circles. Others strive to define the fourth stage of bliss. With such investigating, they fall from the way. Some would envisage it as space. Others endow it with the nature of voidness, and thus they are generally in disagreement. Whoever deprived of the innate, that's what you really are, seeks nirvana, can in no wise acquire the absolute truth. Whoever is intent on anything else, how may he gain release? Will one gain release abiding in meditation? What's the use of lamps? What's the use of offerings? What's to be done by reliance on mantras? What's the use of austerities? What's the use of going on pilgrimage? Is release achieved by bathing in water? Abandon such false attachments and renounce such illusion. 